Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today I join my co-hosts, Dr. Reed Robison and Dr. Joe Flanders, in an important conversation with clinical psychologist, clinical trial researcher, and psychedelic therapist, Dr. Chantel Thomas. Chantel introduces herself in the episode, so I won't do that here. We brought her on the show to talk about the stuff that's hard to talk about in this space, what we're calling the shadow side of psychedelic therapy. We open up about how our own imperfections can harm our clients, the high bar of competence and self-awareness that we believe psychedelic therapists need to clear, the limitations and potential pitfalls of training in psychedelic therapy, the importance of good supervision and being open to feedback, for psychedelic clinicians, the dangers of seeking psychedelic sessions in the unregulated underground, and of course, much, much more. This was a challenging episode for us, but we thought it was important to bring these challenges to the foreground. If you'd like to give us feedback about today's episode or ask us questions, you can email us at ptfpodcast at numinous.com. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you to everybody for joining us for another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. This is going to be a special episode. I mean, they're all special, but (laughs) I'm really excited to be joined by our co-hosts, Dr. Reed Robison, Dr. Joe Flanders, and our special guest today, Dr. Chantel Thomas. Before we ask Chantel to introduce ourselves, let me just sort of set set the stage here. So, you know, our podcast, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, um, is one where we talk about our excitement about this psychedelic renaissance, about the possibilities for healing that psychedelic medicine, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy presents us, um, provides us opportunities for. But over the year and a half or so that we've been doing this podcast, we've received several emails and, and questions, uh, about what one might call the, the shadow side of this work or the dark side of, of psychedelic work. Certainly we're excited. Um, but, uh, some of those questions include things like what happens if my psychedelic experience doesn't seem to have an upside? What if it feels traumatic or destabilizing? Um, we've gotten questions from people who've received psychedelic, um, work, have had psychedelic experiences in in what's referred to as the underground, right? From, from, uh, self-described shamans and guides. And sometimes that goes really, really well. And I have a few clients who, might describe themselves as, as, uh, underground psychedelic refugees where they've been really harmed. Um, maybe even taking it, taken advantage of. And so we thought it, um, it, we thought it would be important to address this head on and directly, uh, on our platform. And I met, uh, Chantel at the maps training retreat a few months ago, and we really connected and had a few conversations about this very topic. And, uh, so we thought it might be important to bring a voice like hers on to talk about this, uh, this important topic. And I'm, I keep calling it important. I'm also really nervous, <laughs> you might detect a little bit of quivering in my voice. Um, <laughs> this is, this is hard stuff to talk about. Um, but, um, I think it's important to dive into the hard stuff. So Chantel, would you introduce yourself to our audience? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you again for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And um, yeah, I, I too am aware of my heart beating in my chest 
um, I think it's, I have a lot of, um, well, I should introduce myself. Let me pause there. So my name is Chantal Thomas and I'm a clinical psychologist and I practice out of Madison, Wisconsin. At least that's where I live. Um, I wear a number of different hats and I've been doing clinical research in psychedelics, um, for the last 10 years, starting with uh, working with psilocybin and then um, having the opportunity to be trained as an MDMA-assisted psychotherapist and being one of the 12 sites for the phase three study um, in the Midwest here. And so I've had the opportunity to work quite extensively with MDMA in that set in setting. And then also was fortunate um, to be a trained as a ketamine assisted psychotherapist in 2019 um, with the ketamine training center. Um, and then I also like my other job is that I'm the executive yeah. clinical director of a program called Winrose Recovery, which is a substance abuse dual diagnosis treatment facility for residential care. We also have an outpatient um, IOP program. We have a detox and then we also have a professionals program in Chicago. And then we also do outpatient ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which we started integrating into our residential treatment programming a little over a year and a half ago. Um, and then I'm, I'm fortunate to have some relationships with other organizations like Polaris and Fluence um, to do some partnering with them around teaching. So um, lots, of, lots of work to do. And I, too, was feeling myself uh, just holding maybe a lot of energy around this topic because, um, well, it, it feels a little edgy to be talking about, which is, it's, it's interesting to me that I feel nervous about it because I, my happy place is usually the edges and I, I really like to dive into the discussions that, that many people shy away from sometimes around the shadowy parts of existence in humanity, because I, I get a lot of relief in talking about those things, because it feels like tra the transparency around that gives me a lot of relief. But I think um, I think some of the the most difficult, like soul questioning, um, in many ways, what felt pretty heartbreaking for me times as a clinician have come through my work with psychedelic assisted therapy in circumstances where I was concerned that I harmed someone. So um, it has been a real um, tremendous journey into humility of recognizing the, the, the tremendous power and um, privilege you exert as a clinician or as a therapist or a guide in this space um, and how to hold that um, honorably is, is something that I am always questioning where I land on that because I feel like um, I got, I really just was in the right time at the right place to come into this work. And I realized there's a very small number of people who've had the opportunities that I've had um, and so I, I carry that with, with a real deep sense of responsibility to act in integrity, um, because of that. And so recognizing those times where I have absolutely contributed to an experience that didn't align for someone else, um, I recognize how dangerous that can be 
and how harmful it can be, particularly if you can't name accountability around that as a provider, as a clinician. Chantel, um, it's really interesting hearing you talk like that, uh, you know, about your own fallibility Mm. in this context. Mm. Um, Maybe you can... um, like unpack that a little bit. Like mm. your 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 intro is so compelling. It's like, oh, I do this mm. and I do that. I have these amazing opportunities and you know, <laughs> maps and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, if if you're still fallible, mm. if you're still, you know, subject to these kinds of blind spots or whatever, mm-hmm. like, what the hell chance do the rest of us have who are you know, light years behind you? What's the deal there? Why the vulnerability? Mm. Well, the first thing that came to mind, and I'm not sure I even fully understand the connection, but it's kind of the same question that I asked myself of whether or not I'm screwing up my kids as a therapist. (laughs) And the answer answer is is yes, by the way. Yes, yes. I'm always screwing them up somehow. I'm missing things all the time. I'm missing things all the time. And I think the biggest... um, my own ego gets in the way, my own history, my own trauma gets in the way, my own desire, my fantasy about what's supposed to happen in the relationship with my children and the reality of it don't align. And I don't think it's that dissimilar in terms of the ways we as humans make predictions about what we think is supposed to happen in certain work. And I think, um, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the knowledge of your own ignorance. And so like, for me, it's like the longer I've done this work, the more aware I've become of how much potential there is for harm. So it's not the the curve of experience doesn't equate with me feeling more and more secure necessarily it makes me more and more aware of the vulnerabilities that are inherent to this work. And so, um, and I've had, you know, people that I've worked with who have been my teachers around that and not people who trained me, but people who I was intending to help, who, you know, ideally um, there comes a time and opportunity if you're conducting yourself in these spaces in the, in the way that feels right, where you um, are able to ask the question, how did I get it wrong with you? And um I don't think we ask that question enough. And I think it's a moral imperative to ask that question when you're doing this work because your privilege and and power in these dynamics that always exist when a therapist and a client or a provider and a client is just amplified 10x once you enter into the equation of non-ordinary state consciousness and, and the power differential gets just majorly ramped when someone is in a vulnerable, in an intentionally vulnerable state. You know, I think uh, it was uh, Lily Ross who uh, does sexual violence research and was interviewed on those episodes, power tripping about some of the mm-hmm. incidents of, of sexual abuse in psychedelic therapy, who, who said uh, that in in this kind of work in psychedelic therapy, when you take a drug that alters the consciousness, you're entering into a boundary dissolving state, um, uh. which which uh, I thought was a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about ego dissolving, but the the boundary dissolving is is uh, just highlights the need for that right relationship and and the that rock solid informed consent and checks and balances and good ethical discussions around it all. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's an isn't interesting the, way to think about it. Isn't that it. the yeah. point of the psychedelic experiences to dissolve boundaries, to break up rigid, uh, you know, psychic structures that aren't serving us anymore? I mean, it, it, it depends how you define a boundary, right? It's like the most misunderstood term in all of psychological theory is what is a boundary? <laughs> um, so I think there is the, the concept of impasses in someone's internal experience or um, stuck points or maybe a certain kind of inherent lack of flexibility. Um, an analogy I use a lot, a lot of the time when I'm working with people, and, and I should say I'm very biased to have worked with people primarily with psychedelics who, who also have trauma. So my lens in doing psychedelic work is really a trauma lens. And so um, what I what I think about it is it's like someone wants to get somewhere and they have this wall in front of them and it has these stones and there's mortar that's very thick and hard in between the stones and um, they're trying to get over or around something. And in order for, for that window of opportunity to open, that wall has to fall apart. Like the mortar starts softening, the stones start falling, and that process of things like destabilizing in that way, at the time that it's happening, is for many people one of the most disorienting possible experiences of their life. And then you maybe potentially in that role are there to reassure them that what is happening is exactly what needs to happen in order for the next window to open or the next opportunity to open. So I don't know if I would um, lean in comfortably to the idea of dissolving boundaries, because I think what we're talking about is what happens in, in the internal structure for someone and then what happens in the co-created relationship between you and the person that you're helping, the relationship you have to that medicine, the relationship they have to that medicine and the relationship you have to one another. It's like this very complex, almost helix of intricacies in terms of what does exist in the field. And um, I think there's a, it's a place where certain kind of boundaries actually get amplified or the need for certain kind of boundaries get mm -hmm. amplified as the way that I think about it, but not always named. Um, Chantel, I wonder if, if we can actually work with some examples here. Um, I think that, we want to obviously respect the privacy of people we've worked with and colleagues mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I am aware though, at the same time that, um, talking the abstract, uh, we mm -hmm. could lose people that mm -hmm. might not have the same reference points for, for what we're talking about. I don't know, Steve, you had a pretty, a pretty interesting, uh, story from earlier. You told me earlier, um, maybe on the extreme end or the sort of more, um, you know, uh, overt, kind of abuse of power, but yeah, maybe we can start with that and see wh where the more subtle issues arise. Yeah. <clears throat> so I have several clients who have found psychedelic work in, like I referred to earlier, what's called the underground. So these are uh, guides, self-described healers, shamans who work with psychedelic medicine and, uh, or ceremony. And um, I've had a few clients go to these people and be really, really harmed, not harmed necessarily because these guides, um, 
are being too cavalier, although some of them are like not cautious enough, but sometimes deliberately manipulative and malicious. So I had one client who went to a person who was serving them cocktails of psychedelic medicines, MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, 5-MeO-DMT, sometimes all in the same night. Um, had one client who I think over the course of six months was served 5-MeO in the form of Bufo um, over a hundred times. And at one point he sort of came to with this guide straddling him and mm. told me later that the, this person was trying to drive my client and his spouse apart and sort of insert themselves between them. Um, and this person had some very complicated feelings for this guide because uh, my client had also experienced a lot of growth and uh, yeah. powerful experiences and so there was a little bit of, he even described a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, you know? Hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm changing details here to protect anonym, anonymity and, and privacy, but, um, yeah, this is that it's not a one-off thing. I've, I've heard this from several different people who've gone in very vulnerable with lots of high hopes and, and submitted themselves to this person, um, made themselves extremely vulnerable. And as Chantel referred to, like in, in these non-ordinary states and, um, was harmed. And then mm -hmm. there's really no recourse. Like there's no mm -hmm. licensing board to report this person to, um, you know, it's, it's technically illegal activity. So they don't feel really confident going to any kind of authority right. and then they feel totally alone in it. Yeah. You know, even back when the maps founder, Rick Doblin wrote his PhD dissertation in there on MDMA, he said that the loving and trusting state that induced by MDMA can make patients, clients more vulnerable to sexual pressure. He acknowledged that it's um, like we've been talking about because of the state of consciousness, the, the power differential. Um, and like you pointed out, Chantal, it's like exists already in uh, that we're aware of and have a lot of guidelines around in therapy itself, but in psychedelics, it's amplified and um, harder to regulate because sometimes when these uh, when these people uh, who say the uh, perpetrators of of abuse in in therapy, what, even if they're a licensed clinician, if they lose their license, they may still keep practicing in the underground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there's so many um, parts of, yeah, I mean, and that, that's a great example, just like in the transition to the unboundaried kind of aspects of the underground work, there's this an intentional moving away from something that's very systemically structured, that's kind of monitored or regulated, right? So like there, there's constant cues to move away from something being regulated um, or kind of... Um, Part of why I loved doing um, the psychedelic clinical research that I did is I love that it felt like a total hiatus from traditional therapy in many ways for many people, just by virtue of the, the structure itself. The fact that the even that we had 90 minutes to two hours with someone for an integration or a preparation session as opposed to 45 minutes or an hour, right? That we weren't um, doing this systematic tracking of symptoms, we weren't coding the visit, like all of these things that, that kind of like 
explain what you're doing in that space, like go away in many ways when you get into psychedelic spaces and that focus becomes something very different. Um, I think both focuses are intended to be about people getting better, but the, the way that manifests, you know, talking with someone who's sitting on a couch um, in a room that feels more like someone's living room than, than an office, right? Like, I think there's all these little nuances that send these nonverbal messages or cues to people that this is not a normal space where those kind of, that kind of structure exists. And I do think that that opens up the window in different ways. And then on top of that, um, you know, the thing that I come back to over and over again is, is maybe one of the things that I feel like might be my greatest strengths also becomes my most dangerous quality as a clinician, which is the ability to connect to clients, that that it's actually in the deepest moments of connection that I potentially become the most dangerous as a clinician. And the reason being that I can easily lose track of what I'm missing when the resonance feels really deep for me. And those have been the circumstances, the, the few that come to mind, have been where I felt like, wow, this is such a strong connection and I'm feeling so much resonance with this person. I really am tracking what I need to be tracking for them. And I didn't have the wherewithal or the foresight or the courage or whatever to stop and say, you know what, this is feeling like a really good connection to me, but I'm just curious, like what sorts of things do you feel like I'm missing as we're spending time together? Or what isn't landing for you in this, you know, it's like, it's not asking when you can tell it's asking when you can't tell or when it feels really resonant. So like that has been, that's probably been one of the most biggest aha moments is that if you think about these relational networks for people who have relational trauma, like becoming open in the presence of what feels like a depth connection, that is where you have the potential to create the most harm because you're in the right networks to do so. And so, whereas like, let's say with someone who presents themselves as not very compelling or engaging or like connected, people self-protect in a different way. And they don't know how to do that in the presence of someone who seems like they're 100% with you and then add, you know, psychedelics or these compounds to the equation, which then further widen those net, that network access. And then it makes so much sense why people are at risk in a different way in those environments. That resonates so much. Um, mm. And I actually never heard it really articulated that like that. But again, it brings me back to this question. It's like, you know, how many years have you been working with MDMA, for example? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. You know, before you had that insight? What's the number? <laughs> before I had that insight? Yeah. Um, Mm, like really, really got it. Probably three yeah. years. Three years. Three or four okay. Years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, there's probably a number of medicine sessions each mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And yeah. I guess. Yeah. I'm just curious. It's like, how does one develop? I don't know if it's the insight or, or like the navigational mm. uh, skills to do that, and sort of what are the pitfalls if you don't. Well, my navigational skills were almost 100% reliant on having amazing supervision. Yeah. I cannot speak highly enough for having the right kind of supervision 
And I think, you know, I, I was, um, I was honored to be acknowledged by MAPS as someone who they wanted to train as a supervisor. Um, and that happened a couple of years ago for me. Um, and at the time when they said, well, we're interested in having you, you know, get in, get training to become a supervisor, I immediately was like, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if, if that's right. You know, like, I, are you sure? It's same when they asked me to help with training. Like, I don't know if I know enough to be able to do this, but, um, you know, I think in, in the supervisory process, like as I started to work with Kate, with different dyads and do more supervision, another like kind of thing clicked off in my head where I said to myself, like, oh, now I can't seek out supervision because I'm a supervisor. And it was like this embarrassing, like, duh moment for me, where I remember my supervisor is Bruce Poulter. And um, I, so it wasn't on the case that I was supervising that I felt like I needed help, but it was on my own therapy case. Like I was doing my own MDMA participant and I was struggling and I knew I was like, kind of just like not landing it. Like, and I knew the case was really activating for lots of different reasons. And yet I felt like almost ashamed or embarrassed that I didn't know what to do, like just intuitively. And because here I am supervising other people and how could I possibly be in that position if I didn't immediately know, you know, quote unquote, the answer, which again, it's a good exercise in humility to admit this <laughs> space because when I, when I finally was like, oh, you mean I can still get supervision? I remember Bruce laughing like very compassionately. But he's, he was like, yeah. And he was always so good at saying, um, I seek out my own supervision still. Like this idea that somehow because you're a seasoned clinician and that you've been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and then all of a sudden that obviates the need for consultation or supervision is a really broken model, in my opinion, for not allowing therapists to really talk about all the times they get it wrong or all the times where they feel completely out of their depth or all the times that they recognize they're getting way too triggered by the person that they're working with. And, and I think it's probably why, again, many people get harmed in therapeutic relationships because there's not enough built-in and integrated safety to have those conversations without, again, the fear of looking like a fraud or this imposter syndrome or feeling inadequate or feeling like you've revealed that you're not capable or, and so um, for me, it's not, it, it has everything to do with developing the acumen, the courage to be able to say like, I'm never going to see this all. And so I need a circle. I need a tribe within my own community that I can lean on to bounce ideas off and then formal consultation supervision at the same time um, in order to do this work safely, to be quite honest. Yeah. I, I beware of the ascended master, you know, ascended <laughs> wow. master in inside of us and outside uh -huh. of us. And I think your comment about supervision and community and accountability is really important. And it's often what's missing in this underground world of people who really don't have a community of practitioners to hold them accountable or give them feedback um, when, you know, their ego gets inflated a bit or they get a little too confident or the medicine makes them more confident than they ought to be. But, you know, I've, I spent much of my young life questing for gurus, questing for mm -hmm. people to 
that I could trust would always get it right because I didn't trust myself. And it was unnerving when I discovered that no such human exists. Mm. Um, and, uh, but also after I sort of dealt with that terrifying realization, comforting, because now mm. I didn't have to become the perfected ascended master mm. in order to be helpful. And I can continue to grow and be helpful in an imperfect way. And as you stated, Chantel, one way to protect other people from my imperfections is to uh, continue to be open to their the possibility of their existence and get feedback and counsel and supervision and help from others so that I can, you know, preferably and hopefully do no harm and do as much good as possible. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's somewhat a uh, philosophical like mission of the treatment center that, that we have is because I see, I saw this happen all the time in substance abuse treatment where it was like um, a client had been struggling with a, some sort of cycle of use and in the residential environment, when they spoke up about what didn't feel right to them or something they felt they were needing that they weren't getting, or there was a complaint or a concern, I saw the weaponization of their diagnosis as like, this, this is just a part of your sickness. Like this is you as an quote unquote addict, not surrendering, not capitulating, you know, being willful, being ego driven because you're saying something doesn't resonate or doesn't feel right. And I felt like that was so incredibly exploitive. And at the same time, I see the parallels that can exist within that where people get amplified to these statuses within psychedelic spaces where they are regarded as these, um, you know, frontiersmen um, or women who um, kind of allow the the magic and the kind of uh, non-ordinary um, ephemera of psychedelia to kind of like be trapped around them as part of their ethos. And so then this idea of questioning or saying like, well, you know, can you tell me about when you've got it wrong um, or hearing them not publicly speak about this, you know, in forums or in trainings for that matter. I think there's tremendous danger in that. And um, I think there becomes this really vulnerable window for, um, you know, being even more empowered to be the voice of beyond because you're wielding a medicine that is thought to be in connection with the divine or spirit or whatever lies beyond us. And so I can easily see how... Um, you know, in the same way, people don't want to fail their journey. They don't want to fail the medicine. They don't want to miss their opportunity for transformation. And so there's just, there's just like so much vulnerability in those moments where you are willing to be, to risk it, to enter into these, like, I can't tell you anything about what this is going to be like, but trust me, I'll be the one <laughs> lets you know what's, you know, what you should be doing in these spaces. Yeah, so it seems like we're touching on another kind of um, harm or another way things could go wrong. And I was going to ask, like, we've talked about sexual boundary violations and, um, you know, what what are some of those ways or how would you categorize them? And then as a follow-up to that, I'm wondering, like, what are the other ways of accountability besides supervision that we might uh, think about as a field? 
So apologies, I missed the first part of your statement or your question. Do you mind repeating it? Yeah. So how how might things go wrong in mm. in psychedelic therapy mm. in terms of this ethics discussion? We've talked about sexual boundary violations, and the one you just mentioned seems mm. like uh, it has a, a a lack of informed consent potential, like mm -hmm. uh, that power differential being. Uh, um, playing into where either the the facilitator or the client not mm -hmm. being able to be honest about the experience or what it might be like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know that that we could do an entire you know week long series on informed consent, right? Like I uh -huh. think that is the most um, uncracked like area of psychedelic work is like what what really is informed consent and what is especially when you're preparing someone for an experience that 100 is unpredictable um you know i i came into the appreciation of the concept of what what you're consenting to is uncertainty like as i worked more and more mm. with mdma i realized that 90 of what i'm trying to do prepare prepare people for the understanding of is that that there is there is a lot of uncertainty that you're that you're consenting to in this process, and yet there's still ways to create structure within that. Um, I think part of why consent is so important is that I, I think probably the biggest vulnerability area sometimes in psychedelic spaces is that there's really isn't a proper preparation process, and so you're not because people are there's a lot of fascination with the drug experience or the medicine or the compound experience. You know, the preparation really does feel peripheral, I think, in many circumstances. And um, in, in more vigilant environments, there's a tension to ruling out certain things, but really getting a felt sense or an understanding of how someone is anticipating the experience internally, what sort of expectations they've hinged upon them, what pressures are they placing upon themselves to be a certain way in the context of that medicine experience? And how capable is this person of asking for help or speaking up when they feel like they're being wronged? Like those are, those are pieces of like a living assessment of informed consent that I think are very different than going through paperwork, right? About the things that could go wrong. It's this like living assessment of someone's capacity to speak up when they feel like something is misaligned. And then, you know, um, if you don't build that into the infrastructure of the way that you prepare people and it's not kind of built into the dialogue in a living way, um, it just gets kind of discarded as a box that's checked. And so, um, and I felt the very real pressure of, um, you know, my own excitement about getting to dosing, right? And and wanting to, especially again, when the connection is great, or if you're in outpatient land with ketamine, um, there's a limited amount of resources. And I literally worked with a client last week who said, God, this is a lot of preparation. Like, this feels like really like, can we just get on with it? <laughs> and there was a part of me that thought, you know, of course, like my anxiety part was like, Oh, they don't feel like their time is being well spent. Maybe they feel like financially this is not worth it. Now, all these things got built into that one phrase that I then had to like very intentionally unpack with them on the dosing day because I wanted to really understand what that meant because I understood it, it, it kind of housed something really important about the relationship and also about the expectancy of what was going to happen. 
but I don't, I don't know how much support people are getting in knowing how to have those conversations and how to really spend their time in a way that feels intentional, but not like um, overly gratuitous and at the expense of someone's financial circumstances or their limitations. Um, I think it's also the major risk of doing higher dose work out the gate is that you're not testing what someone's system is capable of doing in the moment when they enter into a non-ordinary state place. I, I have been inherently geared towards lower dose work as an entry point because I feel like what, what I'm watching in that moment is how likely are they to ask for help when they need it? Um, how likely are they able to talk about something that doesn't feel right for them? How willing are they to allow you to adjust things for their benefit? Um, and you'll find that so many people are will not even tell you they're freezing for the first three hours because they don't want to inconvenience you. Like, that is mind-blowing in terms of thinking about their capacity to actually speak up when emotionally they're feeling harmed or something is in conflict or something doesn't line up for them. If they can't literally describe a body temperature regulation that is fixed by a blanket, like let's really consider what people have been trained to do in terms of talking about what they actually need in these spaces and having the courage or the invitation to do so without fear of offending you as a facilitator or without their trepidation, understandably based on their own history about entering into some sort of relational conflict. Yeah, those are really, really excellent points. And it reminds me of a dosing session that I was in not too long ago in one of our psychedelic studies. I'll leave it vague just to not name the particular study, but a classic psychedelic with different dose options. And um, the client we were sitting with, I was with uh, my co-facilitator at the peak of the experience, um, even though we had all these prep sessions and a, and a good, solid relationship um, in place, they became scared of the facilitators they became mm. scared of us like they thought mm. uh in this peak of uh of a psychedelic experience that presumably a, a significant dose um had some disorientation around that trusting relationship and uh and you know that's a whole another interesting issue so i like what you said about low doses and testing the waters and testing one's ability to ask for help and and uh testing the trust in really manageable ways. So you build up the marbles in the trust jar systematically. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and so many people's his, especially if you're dealing again, like in the relational trauma space, like people have been trained to like sublimate what's needed. And mm -hmm. so it makes so much sense that just like saying, Hey, we're here for you whatever you need, like we're in the service of you, you know, like those all feel like really nice phrases that are being said by a person, but like the lived experience of safety within that request is not inherently not built in for people with relational trauma. So you can say it all you want, but for many people, if you don't give them the practiced experience of, of testing that out, including saying, hey, um, I really disliked your playlist, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, like giving people permission um, to be able to share those things without fear of consequences in terms of the relationship itself. 
Yeah. And I, I did see this as well play out your example around um, not wanting to disappoint the facilitator. Um, that uh, happened recently in a dosing session as well with uh, kind of a, an, an older um, individual who in many ways I'd count, uh, you know, a mentor or, or mm. thought leader in their own right um, in this vulnerable state had uh, this uh, like kind of surprising to them feeling of not wanting to let us down as facilitators mm. and wanting to do it right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's really big. And also this like, um, you know, for me, when I enter into psychedelic space, it gets really complex because I have a lot of religious trauma and I, and I have a very complicated history with God as it was described to me as a child. And, and to me, psychedelics felt like the closest proxy to that spiritual pipeline in many ways. And so for me, like failing a medicine journey or feeling like I didn't show up in the way that I wanted to felt almost like some sort of divine failing on my part. Like I missed my chance to align myself with this spiritual connectivity that might've come through this experience because of my own fear or because I was too controlling or because I couldn't let go enough. Right. Like, and just think about the heaps of self-judgment and shame that get kind of launched onto someone's persona when they, when they carry that history and they believe in the ethos of this work, but they, their system is just not ready for that kind of uh, surrender. And nor should it be asked to in many ways with, when there's not really a stable platform upon which they can kind of grasp, you know, what are we asking people to do based on their history, you know, based on fill in the blank? I mean, it's a really interesting question or conversation, which is part of why, like, I totally have so much respect for trust, let go, be open. That was the phrase that was taught to me um, through a certain group that I was trained with. And then I thought, God, that's a pretty big ask. <laughs> That is a pretty bold ask of someone who may have been exploited or abused by people who were telling them in many ways exactly the same thing in their history. Chantel, this makes me think about um, how much responsibility the facilitator or the therapist or the guide or the sitter has when someone is vulnerable like this and how I think we touched on this a bit earlier talking about the relational networks and stuff. Um, these, um, psychedelic experiences can, uh, transference is obviously a very big thing that we work with. I know it comes up a lot in the, the maps work. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does put the, the facilitator in a very delicate position, mm -hmm. uh, a position of like enormous influence mm -hmm. where their own intentions and their own blind spots become like front and center. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, opportunities for influence, um, both good and bad. I wonder how you think about, you know, how a, a facilitator ought to be managing that, that heavy weight that they, that they, that they take on in these, uh, in these environments. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's an, I don't know that I have a perfect answer. Well, obviously I don't have a perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous thing to say. I'm not sure uh, I have a fully formulated answer to this, but but what the first thing that comes to mind 
um, albeit a major barrier to the economic um, multiplier effect of doing this work, is is this idea about co-therapy. And certainly we've heard of instances where it goes wrong and sideways most directly. Um, however, um, I do feel there is, because of the weight of that charge that I feel like I never understood what energy work was until I did psychedelic work. Like I remember people would talk about energy work and I'd be, I'm embarrassed to say that I would roll my eyes a little bit and be like, okay, sounds good. And then um, I started doing, I, even the thing that really drove it home for me was actually CAP, doing ketamine sessions where I literally felt things in my body with such amplification um, that I would walk out of a session going, I mean, feeling like I was in a non-ordinary state and um, recognizing I couldn't do them back to back because I actually essentially was not oriented enough to enter into someone else's journey after having a really intense cap journey. And I, and I've definitely felt it with MDMA work too, maybe a little less so with psilocybin because the, the way I was working with psilocybin wasn't as relational as those other two models that I've been using. Um, but yeah, this, this piece of having a witness and then having a counterpoint to be able to kind of like, well, what did you notice in there? And even just to like, to be able to like, look across the bed where you're doing the session or look across to, to, to make eye contact with someone else who, you know, is, is, you know, hopefully grounded enough to be able to track feels like a really important safety piece around working with someone where, you know, the charge is really high. And I think the other, um, for me, the, the major, the, the other largest piece of um, working towards establishing more safety around that is transparency and processing that in real time, not in the session itself as much as during the preparation, as soon as you start to notice it. So being able to have a process-based dialogue with people about what is this relationship feeling like to you and what what are you noticing about what I might bring up for you? Um, I think that kind of process-based conversation, you know, we think all the time about like, uh, well, how do you prepare to become a psychedelic therapist? Like there are fundamentals within being th a therapist in general that are not inherent to every therapist practice that, that kind of go outside just skills-based work or technique-based work that has to do about process-based dialogue about the relational elements that I think are an absolute necessity in these spaces, at least as I understand them and as I navigate them. Um, because if you can't have that conversation in preparation, you're certainly not gonna be able to have it in dosing when things get really charged to lean into, you know, I'm having this feeling or I'm sensing that and just naming it explicitly, I think, um, is a really important element of being able to speak to what is not named, but what is felt. And I think what is not named, but is felt gets even more amplified in psychedelic spaces if it's going well, to be quite honest. Like that's kind of the point as I see it is moving off of these more content dialogue based spaces into like process based felt sense, emotionally charged relational, you know, content essentially. Um, so I know I started that conversation and went all over in my response. I don't know if that, if that lands for what you were speaking to Joe. A hundred percent. 
but again, I, I keep coming back to like, okay, it's not, you know, super skill-based. It's very like, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. energetics. It's this mm -hmm. sort of relational field that's not always explicit. It's like, okay, um, mm -hmm. maps trainer, how do you train people mm -hmm. to do that? And, and mm -hmm. what has your experience been like in trainings? Well, I'm super curious to like pulse Steve on this because he went through yeah. a training with me. Like what I'm, well, both of you, Joe, you both went through trainings, MDM trainings. Like what did you walk away with learning about that? Like, I'm curious, like what was your takeaway specific to MDMA assisted therapy? Yeah, I had the, the distinguished privilege of having Chantal as my small group leader uh, at the MAPS training retreat the MDMA training retreat. Um, and I remember telling you, and I think Marcella Odolora that, mm -hmm. um, the bar seems ridiculously high for <laughs> psychedelic therapists. Um, and bless her heart. Marcella was like, it is a high bar and, and you've cleared it, Steve. Don't worry about it. I was like, <laughs> okay. I, I can hear her saying that. Oh, a blessing. So but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, uh, and it, I felt it was high for the reasons we, all the reasons we've talked about today, but this one in particular, that there mm -hmm. are a lot, you, you can't necessarily just deploy a set of techniques that you read in a manual and feel totally comfortable that you're going to be helpful and not harmful. Um, and I feel like from a training perspective, the, the way the retreat was designed with small group processing discussions and role plays was really helpful to mm. um sort of get in the trenches and, and see what that was like and the role plays were not necessary i mean they were they were about using this particular approach that maps uses in their studies but um it was more about tuning in to um the energy the feeling the problem behind the statements of the client um, and just trying to be with them in that space uh, so that's, I guess a little vague, but that was, it was both exciting and intimidating to, to kind of come to the realization that that is what is required to do this mm. work. And, mm. and I think it's something that is at least one part intuitive in a person and another part teachable and trainable. But sometimes I wonder, you know, it's like not everybody is funny. Like you can't, you can't necessarily teach someone to be super hilarious. They can practice jokes and things like that, but some funny comes naturally to people, timing and irony and all that stuff comes naturally to some people. And I think following the energy of another person's emotional state is at least in some ways also sort mm. of this intuitive thing that we're born with. I don't want to discourage people listening. Mm. You, you can't possibly improve and learn these things. I think you can, but yeah, there's something really fundamental about it that I think is difficult to teach. You know, what's interesting to me is that in uh, MDMA assisted psychotherapy and many other psychedelic therapies, there's this non-directive approach to the facilitation of sessions. Um, but yet as a facilitator, you need to be directive when safety is at hand or when you're preparing, like you need to um, be very, uh, explicit about the appropriate use of touch, you know, before each session, for example. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, uh, you, 
you really do need um, skills in both of those areas, I think, to to mm-hmm. navigate this well and, and be able to speak up when um, things don't feel right or check in with your supervisor or um, call out things that are don't seem to be going well. Mm-hmm. Chantal, I can uh, come back to your question if you're still interested. Um, I am. I remember very, <laughs> very, and by the way, for the record, Chantal was also my home group it's leader. It's true. Yeah. Um, so does that, I guess that makes Steve and I brothers in a way. Um, <laughs> um, I, remember, I had a very, very distinct feeling mm. of something along the lines of like, oh, I see what they're trying to get at here. Mm. They're like pointing to something that mm. I'm not actually learning, mm. but they're pointing to something that I need to learn. And this is how I should be thinking mm. about it. And there's all these like really um, courageous and intelligent and well-designed attempts mm. to get me to see something, experience something, feel something that, that um, was going to prepare me for MDMA-assisted therapy, but that I was not actually learning. So it felt like they were all sort of signposts to something yeah. that I needed to learn. Yeah. And then, you know, I thought like that was, you know, that was really interesting, but like, I, I still don't, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I've worked, I, I have a kind of a experiential approach in my traditional therapy. So I, I had a bit of a reference for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have experience with non-ordinary states. So I was trying to triangulate, obviously a huge piece that was missing. I did it during COVID and it was virtual was yeah. actually getting, you know, sitting with someone uh, or having someone sit with me while I took MDMA and just having that real experience. Mm. Um, So that was huge. Um, And then, you know, I'm in a position now to say that not only have I gone through the training, but I actually did, I was a co-therapist in an MDMA trial, very, very difficult. Um, And, and it sort of confirmed my sense of like, Oh, I didn't really get it at the time. Mm. And like, wow, there's a lot to learn here. Um, and you know, one of the things, this is an example is like the co-therapy thing. I think, um, there was, there was, there was a module dedicated to it. I believe, Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of discussion and stuff, but it's like, oh my God, it's like, I have me and all my shtick and I have this, (laughs) this other person with all their shtick and it's like, you know, um, sort of kept under, you know, under wraps and in check and regulated, but sometimes it isn't, especially when you throw in. Um, this, you know, these, these compounds and stuff. And it's like, holy smokes, this is really Mm. complicated. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm feeling like, um, it's like how I'm doing what, you know, the fight I got into with my wife last night is suddenly Mm -hmm. here in this MDMA session. Like what the hell? Yeah. 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 You know, totally. And so that, you know, I didn't feel especially well preferred. And I think I probably made a bunch of mistakes as a consequence of that. And, mm-hmm. and the supervision is really important, right? Um, yeah. That it should be um, supportive and non-judgmental and trauma sensitive and all these things. And so, yeah, it's a, again, uh, it's a, it's a really tricky thing to, thing to train. It is. It is a really tricky thing to train. And I think, you know, we've gone through so many iterations of understanding <laughs> what training should look like, right? Like, and you know, in many ways, um, at what I always come back to like really resting into is the supervision process yeah. is like, because again, you can go through all this training and then you have, I mean, 
experiences are as diverse as the diversity that exists within humankind. Yeah. So you can, you can learn the model on a particular type of person with a particular kind of trauma. And then you work with another person and it's like, it doesn't even feel like the same therapy. And that's like, you know, a little bit mind blowing in many ways. I mean, it's, you know, I remember when I first started learning how to do ketamine, went to the, you know, I had already been trained as an MDMA assisted psychotherapist. I'd already been doing MDMA work. I learned ketamine in like a five day workshop and I came out of there. Now this is my bias feeling completely underprepared <laughs> to do that work because I didn't feel like I really understood the compound. Like I didn't fully, it, it was, it was a, I thought it was a thorough training in many ways, but it felt like wholly inadequate for what I felt like I really needed. And again, disclaimer on kind of how my process works and probably wanting to be overprepared. I was one of those people with tests that was probably obnoxious to other people. So, but that is part of it, right? Like your own psychology, like what do you need to get your head wrapped around something? Like, how do you know, what do you know about how you learn new things? Like, how do you understand how you engage with the existing training platform? Is it a good fit for how you integrate information? Is it completely disparate from what you need? And so like this ability to self, you know, kind of like um, for many people, the luxury of being able to ask the question, do I actually feel prepared enough to do this? And like, if I don't, what do I do? And for me, it was like I sought out consultation with people who had been doing it because I immediately knew I as much as I'd been doing psychedelic clinical research for six years at that point, and I still felt like, I don't think I'm prepared to work with this compound yet. So I, you know, sought out a, a dear friend in Colorado, Craig Salerno, who had been doing it for, I connected with him at the training and I really respected him and I liked the way he thought about it. And I just talked to him and I called Marcela and I talked to Marcela because I knew she had a ketamine practice. So like I sought out people I really trusted and I just asked all the questions and maybe I was embarrassed to ask in a forum, in a training forum, right? Because you're still impression managing in a training forum. You're still like trying to figure out how you fit within it. Like all of the psychology of, am I smart enough or good enough? Am I, should I even be in this space is in the room every time you learn a new thing. So um, I, I really feel that um, in many ways, you know, the goal is certainly not perfection, right? In many ways, the misses in this work are the deepest insights the danger is when you have clinicians that don't ask the questions that bring forward the disconnects or the ruptures. And for whatever reason, understandably, don't have kind of the internal fortitude to be able to tolerate getting it wrong and without blaming the person that's sharing that information with you. And that, I think, in regular therapeutic practices, I have worked with a minutia of clients that have come to me and said, you know, my therapist checked in with me and said, how's this therapy working for you? And, you know, people don't ask that question. They don't go, do you feel like I'm meeting your needs? I mean, people do. I don't want to say they don't, but a large percentage of people haven't really been supported in having a dialogue about missing things because again, it's easy to think like, oh, if you're a really great therapist, you miss less. And that's not necessarily the case. You just ask more questions to be able to suss out what's actually happening for someone so that you become aware of those areas of disconnect or misalignment. 
And then the opportunity becomes like, how do we navigate it in the face of that feedback? And how do I become potentially corrective experience for you where everyone else who you maybe have said this to was totally abusive and reactive and shaming and belittling. So it's for me that the, the key piece here is not about being attempting to be a perfect therapist. Like that is not the goal. It's really about the awareness that you will always miss something. The question is, is how big is the miss? And does it, is it, is a miss that's really big? How dangerous can it be for someone? The, the scary thing to me and what really was destabilizing to me when yeah. I was acting as a co-therapist is, okay, I get yeah. it. I don't have to be a perfect therapist, but like, yeah. holy shit, I have to be a perfect human. It's like, um, I have to be super willing to like admit when I'm wrong. I have to yeah. be like totally not, you know, not experience any shame or anger. Yeah. Like, I know I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but it's like, yeah, it's yeah. like you, you have to be like a fully developed uh, human, yeah. you know, mm. um, an mm. adult even, you know? Mm. Um, so um, the, the, yeah. the years of therapy uh, that, that I, you yeah. know, that I was acting as a therapist were sort of good training, but it's actually all this, the, you know, talking about fighting with my wife all the time, but like the fights yeah. I have with my wife, the, the, yeah. the, the, the challenges I have with my kids, how I deal with my friends, how I do with my colleagues, yeah. like all that stuff suddenly became yeah. on the menu. And I was like, what? Yes. I, is this what I really <laughs> signed up for? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right. I mean, I, that's been my experience of it. Is it, it becomes an exegesis on all your unfinished business. Like it really does. I mean, that's the amplification of the work as I see it. And that's the part that, you know, how do I become a psychedelic therapist? And it's yes. like, well, that's an interesting way to think about it is like, how much of your personal work have you done? How do you do in the face of conflict? How do you do yes. when you feel directly shamed by another human being? How do you do when someone points out where you got things wrong? You know, like those things to me feel like a really inherent piece of of being able to kind of like earn the privilege of being in this enhanced position of power in those spaces. Chantel, this is, uh, I could see it now, MAPS Training Institute, the tagline <laughs> under the logo, exegesis of all of your unfinished business. That's <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, yeah, and up. I want to... I want to clarify too, like I am not, I'm not speaking to this as a representative of maps, right? Like this is my personal take on what it's been for me within my own history and kind of like what that journey has been. And what I found to be really encouraging about it is a lot of the fundamentals that I learned in those spaces translated into every psychedelic space where I was working with people and then became kind of like my, this became my own code of conduct, um, which is continues to be a massive growth edge for me. But I was talking with my husband last night, who is also a, um, Steve got a chance to meet him. He's a um, neuroscientist and, and clinical researcher. And also his lab does a tremendous amount of psychedelic research at UW. And he also was trained as an MDMA assisted psychotherapist. And I said, you know, I'm feeling a little bit nervous about going on this podcast, but I, you know, I have a lot of confidence and the gentlemen that are doing it because they're all really good guys. And I, I feel very supported in that, but I do feel nervous in talking about kind of the shadowier edges of, of doing the work. And he said, we'll just pull out the whole maps code of ethics. And every single item on there is because there's a shadow connected to the need to stay state, state the item on the code of ethics. 
That's so true. And, you know, in uh, many settings outside of uh, maps, uh, we've like in ayahuasca retreats in the jungle where I've gone with a, a bunch of therapists, um, we've used that code of ethics and made sure it was not only read, but understood and discussed at length. And, and we've, yeah, it, it highlights the need for those um, and not just as a token document, but one to really uh, demonstrate understanding and even confidence in like this, um, like the example you gave of being able to uh, admit when you're wrong or take feedback would be so crucial to uh, assess um, and have as one of those core competencies in in therapists and facilitators uh, that's widely accepted by uh, you know a, a, a large pool of experts. Hmm. Yeah, and and believe me that that continues to be my toughest growth edge because I am like notoriously terrible at receiving feedback. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, I came from a family where perfection was an expectation. It was like, how did you do on the test? It was like, did you get the highest grade? You know, who got, you know, I got second highest grade, who got the first, right? So like it is built in me to not want to get things wrong. Like it is mm -hmm. a deep part of my psychology to feel incredibly shameful for missing things. And so, you know, like from like a cosmic writing, it feels so like, I don't think it was an accident that I was drawn to these spaces because mm -hmm. I felt like it finally, you know, I can talk a pretty good talk. And as you can hear on this podcast, much to my own a little bit of my own horror is that I talk for very long periods of time and I can talk about lots of different things and I can be uh -huh. pretty articulate at times, but like that does not allow me very often to be kind of held into a certain kind of accountability around different kinds of things that I struggle with. And, you know, I be, I'm in a position of power in my organization where I supervise a lot of people. There's not a lot of checks and balances on me as a clinician in that space. And a very important part of the relief and also the tremendous challenge that I experienced in working in clinical trial spaces where there's supervision built in was this opportunity to be, um, to be able to talk about these areas where I really need to keep growing. Yeah, I, I love that. On a, on a semi-related note, I'm wondering what you think of the dyad model in terms of mm. uh, um, helping keep everyone safe in this work um, and how it relates to work beyond the MAP studies and, you know, mm. the other clinical trials where it's built in, um, but even in the ketamine work. I know we, we probably have different approaches in, in our mm -hmm. group, um, but I come from a place of, you know, after... I think 11 or 12 years of of ketamine work and you know thousands of of sessions i i've just always taken the approach of you know with uh um with a female client it will it's never me alone but i know mm -hmm. that and that's not a, a wrong or right thing it's just been an mm -hmm. approach um mm -hmm. and i know there are other benefits to the the potential to the dyad model but wondering what you how you view it in light of safety yeah mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think, um, again, there's this inherent 
tension point about how do we make this available to more people and more people who mm-hmm. need it and people with less resources. So immediately I, I'm struck with the very strong reality of um, how costly it is to have a dyad for, for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. at the same time, um, you know, I learned how I, I formatively learned about doing this work, not only in a dyad, but also being videoed. And so in many ways, um, I think perhaps in circumstances where people can't have a dyad, it's worth exploring the opportunity of videoing sessions in some ways. Like there is something incredibly important for my psychology about like imagining someone watching what I was doing in the session, like the that's how I like internalized it was like, in case I get caught up in some like emotional current or just like what feels like this mountaintop moment and the client is crying and I'm crying and it's like, everything is charged to just be like, if someone else was watching this, how would I explain what I'm doing in this moment? Like, how could I translate that and not just say, well, you had to be there, you know, you had to be in the moment, right? Like, I do think there is something that a a person does when they're being observed. And I think in many ways that can be really challenging because some people may not like the feeling of it and they don't feel it's as natural. But for my personal journey, I think there's something really valuable about um, the the possibility of deepening accountability with um, having a dyad or having another person in the room or having someone bear witness. Um, But, you know, I'd be curious to hear what, what you all think about it and what your experience has been. Cause I I've also done solo sessions before ketamine sessions where it's solo and there's just different logistic challenges in being a solo practitioner in psychedelic spaces. And, um, and this is a really important part that we're trying to figure out in terms of what what feels right for people. Um, I've generally really enjoyed the dyad model. Um, sometimes I, I like it because I'm. It's not all. It doesn't have to feel like it's all on me. So mm-hmm. if there are moments when I have doubts about how to be helpful or what to do, it's nice to know that I have somebody else that I can lean on. Um, the flip side of that is sometimes I get a little annoyed with my therapy partner <laughs> if they're doing something that I think is, I don't know, lame <laughs> or, or not, not the way I would take it. You know, this isn't the yeah. direction that I would take. This isn't. And so yeah. it's a great opportunity for me to be thoughtful about why am I reacting that yeah. way? Is this my yeah. pride? Is this, um, do I need to be in, in control of this? What even is yeah. control in a situation like this? I remember experiencing this as a, as a Mormon missionary where you're paired up with another person and you, you kind of can't leave their side for two years. Um, and just having thoughts Is that thoughts part like, of it? Yeah. That's yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I, I get so yeah. excited when I hear you talk about your history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, you, you don't get to pick who you're partnered with and sometimes you're with them for several weeks, sometimes mm. several months. And really the only time you're not with each other is when you're in the bathroom. And so sometimes it's great if you really click with somebody and, and sometimes it was torture for me, Yeah, you know, and, and we're teaching and ministering to people and I've got a direction I want to take it. And my, my missionary companions taking it a different direction. And I remember one time I was, I mean, I was in my early twenties and, um, 
he's teaching a lesson. And I just rolled my eyes apparently. And I wasn't aware of how <laughs> hard I rolled my eyes. And he looked over me in the middle of the lesson. He's like, is it, is it okay with you if I keep doing what I'm doing? And I was like, yes, of course. He's like, of course. It doesn't look like it. <laughs> oh, no. So that, that was an important lesson for young, for young Steve on, uh, you know, being, being careful about the messages you send. And, uh, mm. and I, I've thought about that often as, as, a working in psychedelic therapy work as mm. a, in a therapy dyad is hmm. I also need to be thoughtful about how I am being in the room energetically and um, implicitly and explicitly for the benefit of the client. I want to be able to give these clients all the confidence in the world that we can hold them safely through this experience. Because, you know, we're talking a lot about a lot of the challenges right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining, you know, somebody listening to this podcast being like, holy crap, I'm never going to get psychedelic assisted <laughs> therapy. If these people are so imperfect, uh, how can I possibly have a good outcome? Um, yeah. yeah, I've just been really thoughtful about our own imperfections and, um, you know, what would give a client confidence mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the work that we do. Yeah. I love that. It's a great, great conversation killer. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, I was thinking another reason I actually really like dyads is because it's really good for my history because, um, share another like not so flattering story about myself, but like, I remember as a kid in class, the physiological sensation that would come over me when someone would ask a question that I knew the answer to, and I didn't get called on. It was like this, this like, well, it, like I could literally feel it starting at my feet and rising up. And the longer it took for someone to call on me when I thought, when I knew the answer and wanted to show that I knew the answer. And what was like this amazing, um, and I practiced growing into adulthood, like purposely not raising my hand when I thought I knew something, because I knew there was some edge there I needed to understand or like do something with. And I also didn't want to be that obnoxious person in class. And I, what happened is I noticed when I started doing co-therapy, the same sensation came back when I wanted to say something in a session and my co-therapist would talk first, or I was ready to say something and I wanted to create enough space for them. And so the other real gift of the co-therapy model is it kind of, it, it behaviorally, environmentally reinforces the idea that you don't have the answer you yourself don't have the answer and that there's like this tremendous value to decentralizing you as the person that holds the information or even the questions for that matter. And I think it's like that shifting across um, multiple people in that way. And ultimately, if you're doing it well, the client walks out feeling like they're the ones that hold the answer, right? Not you. But I do think there is this other piece for me about the dyadic work that the same thing that it makes it challenging is the, is the thing I trust the most about it, which is it kind of exposes all of my therapeutic reflexes and forces me to be more intentional about what I'm doing in the, in the space with someone. Yeah, that's really well said. I, it, that that point has never been driven home more to me than than in a dyad experience where you know my co-therapist speaks first. They say something that I wouldn't have said, and I'm sort of sitting here like, oh well, we'll see where this goes. And then it and then it goes really, really well. Really well. 
Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I'm such an ass. <laughs> such a wonderful uh, yeah. teaching moment. Yes. Or just like the ability to sit with the pause, right? Like thinking you know what you want to say and just waiting longer before mm -hmm. you say it. You know, that the gift of that. I mean, I think people who are like uber meditators will be like, duh, because they've been doing that for a long time right. or really mindfulness based people. Like that's a big part of what we're teaching people is to create to widen the space for the pause. Right. Um, but man, it's, that has been a real gift to me. And it's, it's continues to be a massive growth edge. And when I'm overly tired, not well slept, cranky, irritable, whatever, I just create my therapeutic style becomes so much less spacious and I just mm. fill up more space immediately. Yeah. I mean, a, a testament to the other type of work that we need to do to meet this high bar of being clinicians, um, is taking good care of our nervous system, you know, taking good care mm. of our bodies so that yes. we can, to the extent that it's possible, you know, be at our best when we're showing up for people in these vulnerable states. Cause yeah, when I'm cranky or tired, I'm, I talk more, I'm more directive. I'm less, there is less of that space. I'm, I'm less patient. Yes. Yeah. And using like little skills like diaphragmatic breathing. I mean, I'm a biofeedback practitioner and that was literally the way that I got myself through those moments where I was like, but I want to say something, you know, like that, especially when I was working with someone who's newer or is still learning the model, like really learning how to get in self-regulation inside my own window of tolerance to be able to kind of like, and it's also the other inherent like beauty of that outside of the whole like dyadic complexity is it's really a way to, um, in a very experiential felt sense way, reinforce the idea that the wisdom is not in you and it's in the client or the participant. So like all the time I'd have this like, ooh, I wanna point this out. And I would just go, wait, 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 wait. And then like, you know, 20 minutes later, boom, it comes from them or something comes from them that I totally would have shifted off course if I felt the need to like share my wisdom in that moment. Yeah, that's one of the things I like about the inner directed approach and this concept mm -hmm. of a of an inner healer or an um, mm -hmm. inner healing intelligence. It, uh, yeah, it it helps take the pressure off. Kind of like I said, with having another therapist in the room can help take the pressure off. Like, not only do I not need to have all the answers and steer the ship, um, I would be doing this person a disservice if I tried. You know, if I tried to give them all the answers or I tried mm -hmm. to steer the ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just like something incredibly powerful about demonstrating your trust of their process through your silence. Mm. Like that's the most powerful mechanism of, of reinforcing your trust in their process. I mean, that one thing that I also feel like really compelled to just like underscore is, um, again, Bruce Poulter has been like an incredibly important person in my life and a, a very important mentor for me. But like, I, I had a lot of shame around how I navigated like liftoff in psychedelic spaces in the, in the times when I had opportunities to do medicine work. Um, I had, um, I, I had this impression that if you couldn't just like absolutely surrender yourself to whatever was happening in the moment, um, and just like with this total like 
yeah, this total surrender, if you will, um, that it was really a personal failing of mine. And, and I went through a massive, um, a silent but massive crisis internally around whether or not I belonged in this space as a facilitator because I wasn't on board for like, I was, I wasn't like all in with ego dissolving processes. <laughs> like I just, I found them to be in many ways feel really traumatic for me based on my own personal history. Again, I mentioned the spiritual trauma, but this idea of surrendering to something that I can't see that I don't fully understand. Like, you know, we were conditioned as kids to be, you know, told that that was kind of how the devil worked. <laughs> so like when someone was like, you're going to enter this process and let go and trust it, but you're going to feel totally out of control and it's going to feel like you're moving into darkness. It was like every single part of my system was just struck with terror. And um, I, you know, I almost came to the conclusion that like, I don't have any business being in this space because, because of that. And then I, I, I'm quite certain it was Bruce and actually Marcella at the time I was talking with both of them at the end of like, I think it was the ketamine retreat. And they'd both said like, it doesn't have to be that way. Like there's, you can develop a relationship with a compound like very slowly, like based at the pace of what your system can actually handle, what you can tolerate, like this idea of bigger, faster launches into more like abstract territory where you lose all, you know, these transformative doses being like the only way, not only the only way, but that there wasn't a whole lot of value in hanging out in those other spaces. Like that paradigm shift, like profoundly impacted kind of my mission, which is essentially how do we create a bridge for people who are not psychonauts? How do we create a bridge for people who need relief, who need a little more support, but don't are like every part of their system, uh, codes that as absolute fear and terror and loss of agency becomes a really reinforcing thing around their own trauma history. So how can we use these compounds to kind of like to meet people where they are, as opposed to training them how to let everything go in order to be available to the compound experience. And um, I think that's really important. I don't think a lot of people talk about it. I think it's the biggest risk of doing um, psychedelic medicines in group spaces where you don't know the people really well or the people who are facilitating. And there becomes this comparative experience where people talk about, you know, I remember literally being in a training setting and just having an absolute struggle and just feeling really awful. And, you know, a third of the room was talking about dancing with Jesus in the clouds. <laughs> and, and I was like, what has happened? Like, I did not have that experience, right? And what do I do about it? Especially when you have someone facilitating that environment who is just like a diehard, um, just proponent and a believer in all the good things about that medicine. And they don't really put a spotlight on talking about challenging experiences um, or it doesn't work well for what's being pitched at that training moment. So, you know, I, I personally experienced really difficult integration around processes like that because I didn't know how to make sense of like why my experience felt so disparate or um, discordant or um, why I felt so raw and vulnerable. And everybody's just like switching right back into training gear. And I thought, I need like two days of integration right now. Um, so just to really take a lot more care with oneself when you're entering into these spaces where 
you know, really well-renowned, very well-respected people with really great pedigrees, it doesn't mean that they know how to really prepare you for this journey per se. And that um, you can call it training, but it's about personal work. And the moment you take that medicine, it stops being training. <laughs> so like this idea that somehow it's going to stay in a really contained envelope around that, or that what comes from it is safe enough to be processed in a group environment. I mean, these are presumptions of those spaces that I don't, not all spaces, but some of them that based on your own unique history may not work for you. And in, if anything may feel really not great for your system. And if, you know, may make you ask really big, tough questions about whether or not you belong there. And I would just say um, that people need to take a lot of care in what they know about themselves. And, you know, maybe you go with someone you're really well allied with who, you know, can be a really safe support to you in those environments because, you know, the presumption that it just will be there because, you know, you're all like-minded people is just not true for a lot of people. It is for some, but not for everyone. Chantel, I, <clears throat> I see that we're, we've, we've been on here quite a while. I wonder how yes. everyone's energy is. Yeah. Um, my energy is good. I can keep going, but I wanted to check in with you. Um, and I, I wonder too, like, I feel like, you know, the last part of your answer there was orienting a little bit towards some like recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And we've identified a lot of, you know, risks mm -hmm. and a lot of dynamics that are challenging and, and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. You know, I wonder if, if we could put our heads together here mm -hmm. and come up with some, you know, whether it's just kind of educational uh, stuff for people that might be looking around for a psychedelic therapist or guide in the underground, right? Where they might not mm -hmm. really even know where to start in choosing someone or even, you know, for practitioners that are, you know, a little freaked out right now. Um, s some, some resources <laughs> for them about maybe how to navigate some of these challenges. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say, and I'm not sure it's, I, I want to be as practical as possible, but it's more of just like a thing to hold in mind in terms of like the discernment of how you navigate, um, you know, people who are representing themselves as expert in these spaces is um, someone's pedigree doesn't mean anything about their safety for you. I just, I can't emphasize that enough. And just to hold that in mind. And that's not to be disparaging about people who have impressive pedigrees. It's more about like for your unique history, based on what you need in terms of availability, I cannot emphasize enough is if your gut is telling you something feels off when you're engaging with a practitioner, listen to it over every other message that comes to you around their work, regardless of how many people they've helped or how well regarded they are or how, you know, how long they've been practicing for your greatest safety net is your gut in these spaces and your sense of, I feel fearful. Or um, one fun question I like to ask myself is how well do you think this person would receive critical feedback from you? And if you think in your head, like there is absolutely zero space for me to say anything critical or even any space for me to say anything at all, then I would strongly advise you to take a pause, um, you know, in that endeavor, if you have any concerns about your, your ability to safely navigate, you know, these big experiences. So um, for some people that works, but not for me. You know, I really wish someone had told me that a couple of years ago, that would have saved <laughs> me so much grief. I'm not going to get into details, but 
you know, I'll just amplify that a little bit by yeah. saying that um, I think one of the challenges here, like speaking for myself, I was so, and still am, so enthusiastic and so keen yeah. to have experiences yeah. as a therapist. It's like, oh, that'll be fine. I'll figure that yes. out when I get there. And it's just yeah. like, wow, no, yes. that, that listening to the gut is, yes. is really good advice. And yeah, unfortunately it can sound generic. I don't think it necessarily does in this context, but mm -hmm. it's um, really uh, is advisable to wrestle with that, that mm -hmm. phrase and what it means to you in these, in these contexts. So yeah, I, I really, I really dig that with you on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this other piece is that like, not all medicines are right for all people too. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the other thing I can't emphasize enough is to like really do a little bit more research around different types of compounds and like what the launch rate of different medicines are and, and how that informs how high people dose different medicines. Again, um, certainly not recommending anyone having experiences that are not appropriately sanctioned or monitored, but knowing that people will seek things out to really take into deep consideration what you're asking of your system to allow it to be part of this experience. And based on your history, um, how do you think that will work based on what you know about your experiences where you lose all control or potentially, um, um, you know, how do you do in groups or, you know, the, it's okay to ask like more rigorous questions about the environmental factors that promote a sense of easedness and safety and security for you. Like, I feel like sometimes because of that enthusiasm and because of the potential and because it feels like, you know, a journey or an experience that people just stop becoming discerning about their unique habitus and how that might align with this experience because there's so much value placed on the idea of something that could transform you. Yeah. And so I, I do think there is like tremendous value in really taking careful consideration around that. And uh, this will be the last thing I say, I'd love to hear from you is like, really, if you do happen to get in dialogue with someone really asking them more questions about like, tell me what it's like when it has gone wrong for people that you've worked with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would love to know what a difficult or challenging experiences look like and how you handled it. And what have you learned about people who struggled more in doing this work with you or struggled more in group environments, like to be a little bit more curious about seeing if someone can really speak about a more nuanced perspective on when it goes really well and when it doesn't, because those cases absolutely exist, it's whether or not someone is willing to talk about them becomes a very different part of the conversation in terms of being informed about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm thinking a lot about this point around the experiential aspect of psychedelic therapy training, um, mm -hmm. putting us in, in vulnerable spaces and maybe not assuming that based on a person's pedigree or the reputation of an organization that, um, they're going to be holding safe space or providing opportunities for processing, mm -hmm. uh, and, and vigor or uh, rigorously researching, um, sort of what the agenda is for the training retreat, but also, yeah. I would encourage people to um, not stop with one training, not stop with mm -hmm. one organization or one guru, get a diversity of training. 
um, get a diversity of supervision to the extent that you can, you know, uh, reach out to as many people as you can find and as will, and as will respond to you, um, whose message you respect, or at least are curious about and get a lot of different perspectives. And I feel like that's one way to protect from the thing that I've always been afraid of. And that's just being sort of seduced by somebody who's smart, charismatic, and seems like they have all the answers mm -hmm. is uh, to make sure you have a diversity of experiences and opinions and a diversity of people with strong opinions too. Um, and if you can find anywhere on YouTube or anywhere else where these people are debating each other, that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Oh, I, I love all these recommendations and I think we've, we've covered, uh, some golden ones. I don't have a whole lot to add other than reiterating the, uh, the need for besides good training, good ongoing supervision and, mm -hmm. um, good guidelines, like guidelines for how to navigate these, these tricky areas. Like I'm thinking about Oregon psilocybin facilitation that just rolled out this month and they have a stance on dual relationships um, mm -hmm. and uh, something about um, not entering in any relationship for a year after and not uh, with with the client and not um, not seeing um, you know people you supervise or students or romantic partners or even like like family members for that regard and how to navigate mm. those those things and and even more important how do how do you resolve ethical issues like where does one submit a complaint and where is it discussed and, and investigated is there a whistleblower policy for people to um speak out in a safe way um so mm. um yeah i think where the field is at its infancy in this reemergence the the time now is just so crucial to have these discussions and and proactively keep having them and keep um, iterating on these these recommendations in a good way. Chantel, I have I have one that I need your help in unpacking. Okay, I <laughs> I, I learned at the maps training, mm -hmm. like I heard this phrase a number of times, like understand your intentions for entering this field. I was like, I understand my intentions. I like, I want to do this. this. is so cool. It's so awesome. It's like psychedelics. It's awesome. Mm. And I don't know if it's like the, I don't know, like the, the best analogy I can come up with is like a karma thing mm. where, um, somehow the universe, um, like is somehow your, your deeper intentions, um, manifest in, in psychedelic environments. And so, you know, I was aware of some of my intentions um, and, you know, maybe it was about sort of the press release I had about why I was making this career change that I, you know, I didn't literally have a press release, but just like what I was saying to people and what I was saying to myself. Um, but, you know, I, w what ended up manifesting for me was like, oh man, so like when I was little and I felt unseen in a certain way that really sort of shaped my development and my, you know, experience in relationships, that deep intention is now showing up mm -hmm. in this psychedelic therapy. Um, so 
that, that that's sort of what I learned through experience, but like, how, how would you articulate this thing around? No, know, know your intentions. I mean, I think you kind of beautifully, I'm not sure what you need my help with because I think you beautifully <laughs> described it. Um, I mean, I think it, it falls along the lines of what we spoke about before. It's like, um, it gets thrown around quite a bit, I think, in therapist circles. It's like, you know, not so secret. And yet people don't explicitly talk about the fact that they became therapists because they're trying to heal themselves. Like that's like a thing that gets said, but like then people don't live the reality totally. of that by actually totally. holding themselves into deeper accountability around what how that shows up in their therapeutic relationships. Totally. And so there is no question that like my desire to feel like really special and subversive at the same time has drawn me <laughs> into psychedelic spaces. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I love the idea of juxtapositions. I love the idea that I was helping people do psilocybin in the school of pharmacy at the university of Wisconsin. Like I love these mashups mm -hmm. that just feel irreverent yet. Right. I love the idea of disrupting things. Um, I love juxtapositions. Um, I also think anything that brings the shadow forward is probably a really good thing for our culture. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that is that it brought forward my own shadow of um, <sighs> slowing down, like recognizing when I am not in the know, um, popping the bubble on my like, great instincts and intuition as really dangerous reflexes. Um, the list goes on. And, and I will say that the privilege, oh, it'll make me emotional. Like the deep amount of privilege and heart that is available in spaces where people are healing themselves in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like it should be really uncomfortable to earn that position, to have, to be able to have um, the honor of watching someone do what they would never be able to do otherwise, you know, in front of you. Like you should be uncomfortable to get there. You know, you shouldn't just be able to sign up for it. That's my take on it. Cause it is like, it's such precious, rare air to watch mm -hmm. that happen um, you know, so that's a plug for the gift of it. You know, mm -hmm. they're not separate from one another. They're directly connected. The hard work, the self-scrutiny, the self-reflection, and the absolute joyful privilege of witnessing someone heal. I feel like two, two, you know, two different sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Give me the chills. <laughs> Likewise. Well, Chantel, uh, it is, it is such an honor to have you join us for this conversation. And, uh, I'm, I just, I'm so brace yourself cause I'm going to praise you quite a bit. Like, oh I, God, I, I, I'm getting a bad I'm connection. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing you. I'm just so impressed and thankful for your integrity like your willingness mm -hmm. to come on this show and to have a hard conversation, to be so vulnerable, to be an example of strength in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, it just, 
means a lot to me. It's so wonderful and comforting to see somebody with expertise um, just sort of flay themselves in front of people. <laughs> and say, That's my thing. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm smart. I, I've got a lot of skills. I put myself through the ringer so I can have the honor of doing important work. Mm. And sometimes I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And and that's okay, because I think to some extent we are all in that space. And so thank you for being one of my teachers and one of my friends and mm. for for joining us in this important conversation about ethics and the shadow side of this work. And um, mm. yeah, thank you so much. Well, I, I want to credit back to all of you creating sufficient safety for me to be able to do this, because I definitely, I mean... To do it in a conversation is one thing. To do it on this scale feels riskier, but I, I have so much respect for and for the integrity that you model in this work. And I also promised myself that for the people that I have hurt in these spaces, that I would carry the message forward because it's the least I can do um, to have people just, you know, question themselves a little more deeply. Beautiful. What a beautiful final yeah. word. Thank you Thank so much you. for joining us. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.